right? That's great. How's everyone doing? Woohoo. Hey, well, good morning. My name is Nick Kadoon. I'm one of the pastors here at Airdrie Alliance Church, and it's good to be with you this morning. Like Luke said, we're, we're in our You, Me, We sermon series, and we are looking at the topics uh, of relationships, marriage, sex, and singleness in this series, and we're excited about it. Uh, we, we also know, though, kind of with that in mind, we know that many of you here are not actually married, right? Maybe you were married at one point or another. Maybe uh, you, you want to be married. Maybe you're like, uh, that's not for me. That's fine. Regardless of where you're at relationally, uh, we believe that they're the truths that we're underlining in this series. Each of them are applicable to not just marriage, uh, but our, each of our relationships in general. Let me just say that is except sex, Okay. Sex is not applicable to every other relationship except marriage. All right, we're clear on that? What one person was. All right, cool. Let's do it. So just please don't misquote me there. But like, I'm just saying this. Um, well, well, you might not be married, right? Maybe you're divorced or widowed or, or you're single. Uh, just don't check out of these messages because I, I believe if you do, you're going to miss out on what the Father has for us today, and what he has for us next week and the week after. So let's just all tune in. Let's just lean our ears in and see what the Lord is saying. Speaking of sex, um, next week we have an opportunity to have a gentleman named Dan Kamori with us. Daniel works for a, a ministry called Journey Canada, and they, they help people journey into sexual wholeness. And so he's going to be here talking on a, a whole gamut of things, and I'll just say that to kind of pique your interest. You're going to want to be here next Sunday when Dan is here. It's going to be fantastic. You do not want to miss out on it. And then we're going to wrap this series up the week after with Pastor Sandy back, and uh, he's preaching the same thing on uh, designer sex. It's good. So the sex sermons are coming. I know all of you are like, yes, yeah. <laughs> All right, here we go. Okay, so where are we going today, right? Where, what are we doing this morning? You ready for it? We are going after the topic of forgiveness. Have your Bible or iPhone with you this morning. Come along with me to Luke chapter 17, picking up at verse 3. Luke 17, verse 3. We're also going to be taking a look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, and then heading over to Colossians 3, 12. So you can flip there now or scroll there now. And once more, that's Luke 17, 3, Ephesians 4, 32, and Colossians 3, 12. And while you're heading to those passages, I want to take a moment this morning and give credit where credit is due. I want to give credit to our friend and mentor, Rob Reamer, for his incredibly wise and insightful teachings on this topic of forgiveness. Much of the content I'm going to be sharing this morning comes from Rob's latest book, Soul Care, and this is an incredible uh, resource. If you haven't read it yet, I encourage you to do so. Many of us on staff here, uh, our, our whole, whole staff team, our, our board of elders, uh, some of you in leadership positions, you are journeying with us through this book and, and applying these principles to our, our hearts and our souls. And friends, let me say this, it's life-changing, it's transformational. So uh, yeah, we're, we're promoting two other books in this series, right? Mark Driscoll's book and Andy Stanley's book. But if you can, pick up Rob Reamer's book as well. It's, it's incredible. All right, so starting at Luke chapter 17, verse 3. We're good to go? Everyone's there? Yes, thank you. All right. Man, do you guys awake? That was a, All right, let's go. Let's do it. If your brother or sister, says Jesus, sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Do you guys catch that? Even if up to seven times in the same day someone sins against you, says Jesus, and they come back to you saying, I'm sorry, I repent. 
you forgive them. Now flipping over to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, these are the words of Paul. He says this, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Forgive just as God has forgiven you. And then over to Colossians 3, starting at verse 12, another Pauline letter. Therefore, he says, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. In this life, hurt is inevitable. Would you guys agree? Disagreements, conflict, especially in marriage, right? It's, it's inescapable. And they are bound to happen. Maybe it's to deal with finances, Maybe it's to do with how you're going to raise your kids or how you're going to discipline them. Maybe for, for some couples, it has to do with who gets to hold the TV remote, right? Who has to take out garbage next week? It's not me, it's you. You, me, we, right? Um, and maybe that you know, conflict happens in, in marriage. Uh, small things can become sometimes big uh, issues, and, and big issues sometimes have big hurts. Uh, what about this? What about in-laws? Now, there's a potentially touchy subject, right? Anyone, anyone have conflict because of in-laws? Nobody's putting their hand up? One person? Okay, you're brave. Well, my, my in-laws were here earlier, and I was like, I love you, because I do, and uh, we're good. Okay, we're good, just so you know. But seriously, uh, you know, we're, we're naive if we think that we can go through life untouched by disagreement untouched by, by conflict, especially if we're married, right? Because marriage is this thing where, where two people from two totally different backgrounds and, and, and ways that they've been raised, different values and, and mores, they, they're supposed to come together and, and do this thing together called life. And of course there's going to be conflict at times. It's inevitable. And, and then what about beyond marriage? What about beyond marriage? How many of you have found yourselves wounded by someone else? Maybe you're spoken ill of by a family member or, or a coworker. Maybe you've been lied to or lied about. You, you were betrayed, you were belittled, you were denigrated. You know, much of this is unavoidable, unfortunately. And then for many, there's physical wounding. Maybe you were abused by a parent. Maybe you were sexually abused by an uncle or a high school teacher or a hockey coach. And then what about self-inflicted wounds? Maybe you've made a mistake in your youth or in your first years of marriage, it's that thing that nobody knows about except you. And each and every day, it haunts you, it gnaws at your soul, eating away at you, it just causes this immense inner pain and conflict. In this life, Jesus said, you'll have trouble. Right? Hurt and pain, it's, it's bound to happen. And so the question I want to ask this morning is, is what do you do when you have been hurt by someone else? What, what do you do when you've been wounded by someone you love? made to suffer at the sin of another person. Well, what do you do when it happens? Because, friends, it's not if it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. And then what about this? What do you do if that person refuses to acknowledge what they've done, refuses to own up to their sin, refuses to repent or show remorse for actions? What do you do then? The answer, friends, albeit wildly unpopular, and I would dare to say as well, contrary to popular belief and practice, the answer is this. You forgive. You forgive. 
Now, I think there are some common misconceptions around or about this topic of forgiveness. I think there are some things we have been led to believe about forgiveness that are just not helpful because they're just not true. And to me, the first and most glaring of these misconceptions is that forgiveness is this optional thing. I think many of us are kind of stuck in that camp. We think forgiveness is optional. We, we, we kind of believe or tell ourselves if we, if we feel like it, or if, if there's reason to or justification to forgive, such as the, the person who has offended us has come to us and on their knees they've said, I'm sorry, that only then we have to, we have to forgive them or we can choose to extend forgiveness. But this, is a, this isn't true. You know, we, we see in Luke 17 this morning, we just read that, right, that if someone is repentant for their sin, what does Jesus say? You must forgive them. Like scripture is clear on this, but what, what about in those moments when the offender is unwilling to acknowledge what they have done? What about in those moments where the person is unable to repent for their sins because they've died? What then? Are we, are we off the hook? Are we no longer expected to extend forgiveness? No. No. You see, forgiveness is not optional. Regardless of what has been thought about you, said about you, done to you, forgiveness is not optional, friends. It's just not. No, instead, forgiveness is expected of us by God. But, but, but if you knew what had been done to me, you say, if you knew the horrible things that I was made to suffer at the hands of someone else, there's no way you would ever ask me to forgive. But I would say to you, is that really what Scripture teaches? In Matthew 18, you guys can come along with me there if you want. Matthew 18, we read of an interaction between Jesus and uh, I think the most infamous disciple, Peter. Does anyone have a favorite disciple? Anyone? My, mine's got to be Peter. And I think it's, I think it's because I'm, I'm kind of wired so much like he is. You know, Peter's this raw, real kind of guy. He, he's kind of goofy, but he's passionate and he's, and he's, and he's blunt and he's, just, he's all for, for everything. And he also has this really keen ability to say really stupid things at really awkward moments, right? And I think I love him so much because I'm the exact same. You can ask my wife. I have this tendency to speak without using this thing called my brain. It's really, it's really, um, it's f not fun for anyone else but me, I guess. And, uh, right, and then it leads me to this need to have to ask for others' forgiveness. It's usually my wife's, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And, and here you are like, what, this guy's preaching on forgiveness? Like, uh-oh, okay, and just forget it. It's okay, let's go on. Matthew 18, Jesus has just forgive, uh, finished uh, teaching his disciples on how to handle interpersonal conflict. He says, if somebody offends you or sins against you, Go to that person, right? Talk, talk it over. Settle your, your differences. In essence, he, he's saying, don't allow any dispute to go unresolved. Make an effort here. Don't allow your conflict to become this festering wound in you or in the other person. Don't allow bitterness to become within you this root of division and of hatred. In other words, hug it out, right? Hug it out, he's saying. Settle your conflicts. Uh, shake hands. Kiss and make up. Do what you need to do to resolve your, your, your conflicts. So this is the context of Matthew 18, all right? So now walks in Peter, Matthew 18, 21. Listen to his words. It's like, in light of what you're saying, Jesus, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who, who sins against me? Uh, up to seven times, he asks. Now, now it should be noted that in those days, the traditional like, rule of thumb was that you were to forgive someone up to three times. Okay, so if someone sins against you, Randy, you sin against me, up to three times I'm supposed to forgive you. 
But, but what does Peter say? Notice what he says. He doesn't say three. He says seven. It's like you can just like trace his train of thought. He's like, man, three. I'm going to double it. And then, and then I'm going to add one more. Yeah. That'll impress, the, that'll, that'll impress Jesus. Right? And so he's like, should, should I forgive up to seven times? But notice, notice Jesus' response here. What does he say in verse 22? He says, uh, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Now that, that's quite a jump, right? From seven up to 77. Some translations of scripture actually say that it was, Jesus said, 70 times seven times. So while my math is kind of bad, that's why I'm a pastor, right? Because I can't do math. I think Jesus is saying 490, right? So from seven all the way to 490, that's a huge jump that's astronomical. But the point that Jesus is getting is not uh, to do with the uh, number. What Jesus is saying here, friends, to Peter and all this is stop counting. Stop counting. Stop keeping a tally. Stop giving yourself an out or an excuse to not have to forgive that person. Stop counting and just do it, says Jesus. You see, forgiveness is not to be tied to a numerical value. Forgiveness is not dependent on how many times I have already forgiven that person who just continues to speak about me behind my back. Forgiveness is not dependent upon the gravity or amount of what has taken place against you. No, these are misconceptions about what forgiveness is or is not. No, instead, says Jesus, forgiveness. Forgiveness is to be extended as much and as often as needed without exception. You see, for that's how the Father has forgiven you. Do you realize the grace that has been given to you in Christ? Do you realize the forgiveness you've already received from the Father? Do you realize the insurmountable debt that has been wiped clean from your record, never to be applied to you again? See, that's what forgiveness is, friends. It's a, it's a releasing from your debt the, the person who has hurt you. It's, it's not applying to them any longer the sin that they have committed against you or against someone you love. And this releasing of another's debt, it's rooted, says Scripture, in the grace that we have already received from the Father through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross by the power of the Holy Spirit. As our friend Rob Reamer says, forgiveness, true forgiveness, is only made possible by grace. And grace has been lavished upon you and I. Freely you have received, now freely give. Grace must beget grace. Mercy must beget mercy. So, so why forgive? We forgive because God, in and through Jesus Christ, has already forgiven us. He has first forgiven us. You see, forgiveness is not an option, friends. It's just not. Rather, it's, it's an expectation in every relationship. Every time there is an interpersonal conflict, every time you're offended or sinned against, regardless of how big or small or by who, forgiveness is expected of us, of you, of, of me, of we. This is why Paul commands us in both Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 to forgive others. Right? He commands us. It's, it's command language. He doesn't give us an option or out. He doesn't say, nah, if you feel like it. No, he says, forgive as in Christ God has forgiven you. It's not optional. And yes, while we have been given the choice to forgive, 
Right? While, while it's our personal responsibility to forgive, right? It's not God's responsibility, it's, it's ours. While we have free will, friends, forgiveness is not so much a matter of personal preference as it is utter obedience to an all-loving, all-merciful, all-forgiving God who has said to us, forgive just as I have forgiven you. During World War II, a Dutch watchmaker and devout Christian named Corrie ten Boom, along with her father, they helped many Jews escape the Nazi Holocaust. Upon discovery of their actions, Corrie and her sister Betsy were arrested and imprisoned at the Ravensbrück Women's Concentration Camp in northern Germany. There, along with thousands of other women, Corrie and Betsy were made to suffer unspeakable horrors by the hands of their German perpetrators. While her sister died during imprisonment, Corey was finally released on December 30th, 1944. Her release came just one week prior to the mass murder of every remaining woman in that camp. Many years after her release, while finishing up at a speaking engagement, Corey was approached by a familiar man. You see, she knew who this man was, for he was the guard who had literally tortured her sister to death as she stood by and watched. As the story goes, this man had found Jesus and was now a Christian and had felt led for, for some time to, to ask Corey, you know, one of his prisoners those years ago, for her forgiveness. Man, if anyone had reason to, to, to withhold forgiveness, I think it was Corey. And, and, yet, and yet, she knew this truth that forgiveness was not an option. And, and so on that day, taking the man by the hand and, and confessing to him, her hatred, and her anger toward him. All those years, she forgave him right then and there of all the wrong he had done toward her. She released him from her debt. Forgiveness, says Corey, is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless. It must function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Forgiveness is not an option, friends, but an expectation And we forgive because God in Christ has already forgiven us. It's not about a feeling. It's not about feeling like it or not. It's about obediently doing what has been asked of you. Another misconception about forgiveness is that it's dependent upon repentance. The truth, friends, is actually the opposite. It's that forgiveness is independent of apology and repentance. Let me say that again. Forgiveness is independent of apology or repentance. Now, we we don't forgive because our offender has apologized to us, but rather we forgive because God throughout Scripture has asked us to do so. And regardless of how we feel, regardless of whether we, we want to or not, God has asked us to be a forgiving people because He is a forgiving God. And to this command, we must walk in obedience. As Mark Driscoll states in his book, Real Marriage, forgiveness has very little, if anything, to do with the other person and everything to do with God. We don't forgive because the offender is good or deserving. We forgive because God is good and deserving. We forgive because we have been asked to. We forgive because we have been forgiven. We forgive as an act of worship and obedience to our good, good God. Let me just say this, if you're struggling with this concept of forgiveness void of repentance or apology, let me just encourage you to reflect upon Scripture where Jesus, having been nailed to the cross, is hanging there, and with one of his last breaths, what does he say? 
He says, Father, Dad, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. There's no repentance. There's no remorse. And yet forgiveness was extended. This is the heart of our Savior. This is, this is the posture of our God. It's to forgive. I think another stumbling block when it comes to forgiveness is this. It's this misunderstanding or perhaps a misinterpretation of, uh, of what forgiveness is. Right? Forgiveness is releasing from your debt the person who offended you and, and what reconciliation is. Right? The, the, the reestablishing of a, of a pre, uh, pre-existing relationship. See, it's important to note that forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. While forgiveness is necessary for reconciliation to take place, so too is repentance. As Rob Reamer puts it, we, we forgive, and that's part of reconciliation, but it's not the sum. It's not the whole of it. You see, while forgiveness is independent of repentance, reconciliation requires the offending or, or guilty party own up to what they've done. Yeah, at many times this just doesn't happen. At many times this is not able to take place. And this is why it's important to note the difference between these interrelated yet very different things. Forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. So does this mean you're off the hook when the other party refuses to acknowledge their their sin? No. Does this mean that we don't need to seek out reconciliation with those who have forgiven us? Again, no. No. Jesus in Matthew 18, going back, Right? He says, if someone sins against you, go to them. Make it right with them. Do everything in your power to settle the issue and to be restored. You see, uh, relational restoration is the goal in all of this, in both forgiveness and reconciliation. But again, they're not the same. That being said, at various times, depending on the circumstance, re- reconciliation could be unwise or perhaps even inappropriate. For instance, where physical or sexual abuse has taken place, reconciliation quite possibly should be avoided at all costs. Other times, as in the case of an estranged parent who has died, reconciliation is now impossible. You can't be restored relationally to that person because they're gone. It's impossible. But forgiveness, friends, it's not. Forgiveness is never impossible. Forgiveness must always take place. It should also be noted that forgiveness is not the same as trust. While forgiveness must be extended, right, regardless of apology or repentance, trust needs to be earned. If someone has broken your trust, it's up to them to, to earn that trust back. And often this takes a considerable length of time. Right? The reestablishment of trust is also dependent upon whether or not true reconciliation has taken place. As Rick Warren, author of the best-selling book, Purpose Driven Life, says, forgiveness must be immediate, whether or not a person asks for it. But trust, trust must be rebuilt over time. You see, trust requires a track record. And it's important, friends, to not get confused thinking that forgiveness is to just apply trust back to that relationship. Again, that's, that's, not, that's not healthy. I think people get hung up here. They think, I, I can't trust you, so, so therefore I can't forgive you. But we need to separate the issues. Forgiveness and trust are not synonymous. Trust is not a prerequisite for forgiveness. And while trust is to be given when earned, forgiveness, friends, it should always be extended. Regardless, always be extended. 
One last misconception about forgiveness I think that many people struggle with is that this, this idea that for, by forgiving you have to forget what's taking place. Again, this just isn't true, right? That, that if I'm going to forgive you, Joel, for what you've done against I, I have to forget the offense. No, that's not true. That's not healthy. If we just forget it, it's like we're sweeping under the rug and we're pretending we're living a lie, just saying it never happened, it never happened. But that's not true. It did happen. When we read in places like Isaiah 43 or Hebrews 8 that the Lord forgives us of our sins and remembers them no more, what, what this is not meaning, friends, is that God just can magically forget. Right? He just magically forgets what has happened. You see, God's all-knowing. right? He's omniscient. He can't not know something. That goes against the very definition of all-knowing. No, instead, what, what that means when it, when it says he remembers our sin no more, it means that he chooses to no longer hold that sin against you. To no longer apply that sin to your life, for that debt has been paid in full. Forgiven once and for all through Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is not forgetting what's been done, but rather, as we learned from Pastor Nathan last week in his sermon on a culture of love, forgiveness is choosing to not douse the the present with the mistakes of the past. It's choosing to no longer apply that person's sin against them, and this is especially necessary in a marriage relationship. Something that Katie and I agreed to prior to getting married was to never use the other's past mistakes against them. We, we, we kind of vowed that to one another. We're never going to use your past mistake as ammunition against you, especially in a fight. It's just not healthy. It's unwise. It's unfair. It's childish, really. And it's not following Paul's command to keep no record of wrongs. Andy Stanley, in his book, The New Rules for Love, Sex, and Dating, he talks about the record keeper, that that person who's always quick to forgive, to forgive, right? yet always very quick to kind of rehash, regurgitate the mistakes of the past, especially when it's convenient for them. The record keeper. Friends, this is not forgiveness. In fact, this is the opposite of forgiveness. And if this is you, if you're the record keeper in your family, in your marriage, Let me just say this, and I love you. Stop it, okay? Stop it. It is not helpful. There's there's no benefit in keeping this kind of record of of wrongs, of of intentionally bringing up the past as a weapon to be used against the person who offended you. And and let me just tell you this. When when you're doing that, when when you're doing that, maybe you think you're justified, but let me tell you what's actually taking place. You are partnering in that moment with Satan. You're partnering with the deceiver, with the condemner, the one who works only to kill, steal, and destroy. And you are breathing life into your, sorry, death, not life, death into your marriage. So if that's you, I just I encourage you, I pray, I just I entreat you, stop it. For the sake of your marriage, stop. Stop holding that person hostage by their past mistakes and actually learn to forgive them. Forgiveness is not forgetting uh, what's happened to you, but it's choosing to no longer hold against your offender that sin that they have committed against you. Uh, I want to talk about bitterness for a moment. Another reason why we need to forgive is because forgiveness is far better than the alternative, friends. What do I mean by this? It's simple, really. Bitterness 
the opposite of a, a spirit of forgiveness, friends. It's detrimental to your physical, emotional, and spiritual health. Bitterness is poison to the soul, friends. It, it really is, and it works only to destroy you and those around you. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever met a bitter person before? Maybe they're sitting beside you right now. Quick, don't look. Just kidding. And all the bitter people are like, ugh, Nick. Right? Have, have, have you ever met a bitter person before? I, I have. Uh, in 2009, I had the opportunity to, uh, to travel across Canada with an organization called Live Different. They were called Absolute back then. It was with a group of kind of young adults, and we got to travel from coast to coast across Canada doing motivational presentations in high schools and speaking on the topics of substance abuse and sex and uh, um, social justice and compassion, kind of things that are relevant to that age group and demographic, right? And as we were traveling, we found our way up to Gaspé, Quebec, kind of one of the most northern places of Quebec. Anyone been there? Yeah, one person, Gaspé. I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, so it was like 20-foot snow banks. It was in the winter. It was terrible. And, and we got to stay with this gentleman. He was the uncle of one of the, the, the people who kind of ran this ministry. And he was a really strange kind of fellow. He was bitter, though. Let me tell you that. He was bitter. And you could tell he was bitter. He wore it on his face. He, 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 he spoke bitter words. When he walked into the room, you know, it just like bitterness followed him like a cloud. Now, now was he an evil person? No, not at all. Not at all. I don't know what happened to him in his past, but man, he was bitter. He was also kind of quirky and weird. Like he, would, he had a frozen squirrel in his freezer, I heard that from the first service. Apparently that was, that was because he probably used the fur as like uh, fly fishing things. I don't know. But a dead squirrel in your freezer. That's just weird. And then he also, he would like sit uh, in, on the computer when we were all like, we don't know this guy. And we're walking by him at night. He would sit there in his underwear and like a tank top and drink warm beer out of the closet. He would have like a case of beer. It was just weird. He's on his computer typing away. Like, Good night. All right, man. See you later. This is strange. So that, yeah, a little bit of my life. Just a little bit of testimony right there. Amen. All right, sorry. Let's keep going. So I, I've met a bitter person, and let me just tell you, it's not pretty. There, there was this root of bitterness growing in this guy. It had been growing there for years. It had been growing, and it had overtaken him. You see, bitterness, friends, like a tree or a weed, it has roots. Hebrews 12, 15. Head there with me, if you would. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. Listen to these words. The author says this, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, and that no what? No bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. The only alternative to forgiveness, friends, is bitterness. An unforgiving heart is a bitter heart. And unless we dig up this root in our lives, taking an ax to it, putting it to death, it will continue growing and growing and corrupting our thoughts, our words, our actions, and ultimately our whole selves. But not only that, bitter will, will manifest with itself a host of, of other ways, uh, depression, uh, unrelenting anger, immense, unmanageable inner pain. These are just a few of the side effects of a bitter soul. And then with those side effects come the, the pain-numbing vices. Right? There's, there's binge-watching TV, there's overeating, there's addiction to pornography, excessive drinking, and obsession with social media. I just can't go a minute without checking my, my Twitter feed, right? Why is that? What, what, are you, what are you masking? What are you trying to numb? Friends, bitterness is poison to the soul. And there's nothing positive to come from harboring bitterness toward another. 
And the longer we allow this bitterness to grow in us and permeate through us, the more reinforced this demonic stronghold becomes in our lives. And the harder it is to find freedom. Truth be told, the harder it is to want freedom. After time, bitterness becomes a friend. You see, bitterness hardens the heart. And a hard heart is one that is unresponsive to the Father. This is why bitterness is so dangerous. It's poison to the soul and it works only to destroy our relationship with, with God. It also works to destroy our relationships with one another. Going back to the text, Hebrews 12, 15, we see that bitterness defiles not just the individual, but many, says the writer. Many. You see, bitterness has this tendency to leak out of us and into others. And when we're bitter, we start talking we start gossiping, we start speaking ill, our attitude changes, our heart changes, we, we become hard and crusty, and, and others pick up on this. And as if by osmosis, right, the poison in our soul begins to leak out of us and into others, and bitterness spreads. It's contagious, infectious, it's deadly. Bitterness is a relationship killer. It destroys community, and it takes delight in doing so. Now, I want to say something that might sound a little harsh, but I believe it needs to be said. We promised in this series to not pull any punches, so to speak, just to speak bluntly and, and honestly for the benefit of everyone. And, and so what I'm going to say might sound harsh, but I, just, I, I, I guarantee I've been praying into this for, for the whole week. And I'm, I'm saying this, I'm lathering these words up with as much grace as I can. But let me say this. Let me say this. If you're struggling with bitterness this morning, Maybe you're the casualty of a failed marriage, an affair. Maybe, maybe you were abused as a child. Maybe you were lied to or cheated or publicly dragged through the, the mud. I, I don't know where you've been or what has happened to you. But, but right now, what I know is that you need to know this. Your bitterness is not the result of your offender. Your bitterness is not to be blamed on what has happened to you. Rather, if you're bitter... It is you who have chosen to become bitter. You and you alone have made the conscious, conscious decision to withhold forgiveness and to harbor bitterness in your heart and you are the sole person responsible for the current state that you are in. Not your, not your husband or your wife. Not your mom or your dad. Not your, your co-worker or your ex. Not your prof. Not the, that police officer. Not your pastor even. But You. And if you're bitter, there's no one else, friend, to blame but you. Now, does this excuse your offender for what they've done? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Does this lessen or water down or illegitimize what has taken place against you? No, no, absolutely not. Does this mean you have no right to become angry for the injustice that you have suffered at the hands of another? Again, no. I'm not saying that. A anger toward injustice what the Bible calls holy anger, righteous anger. That, that is a permissible emotion. It's actually healthy. But the Bible also warns us in Ephesians 4 to deal with our anger quickly, lest it become a, a place where the devil could have ground in our lives. I'm not saying any of that, but what I'm saying is that if you're, if you're bitter, friends, you need to know that you are the master of your attitude and emotions, and you're the only one able to determine if you will go through this life as a bitter person or not. Yes, you may have been victimized in your past, but you are not a victim now. 
You have to stop blaming everyone else for how your life has turned out and start realizing that you have been given by God the gift of free will and choice. And you, right now, you can choose between releasing from your debt those people who have hurt you or living your life imprisoned by bitterness and a hardened heart. The choice is yours. I talked about Corey Ten Boom earlier. That woman who forgave the man who had murdered her sister. And following that interaction of hers with this ex-guard, Corey Ten Boom, in her book, Tramp for the Lord, she penned these words. She says, Forgiveness is the key which unlocks the door of resentment and the handcuffs of bitterness. Forgiveness is the key. If you're struggling with bitterness this morning, let me say this, you can be set free. You can be set free today. It's found in forgiveness. You see, that's what forgiveness is. It's not only releasing from your debt those people who have sinned against you, but it is freeing yourself from the prison of hate and anger, from the prison of bitterness, from the prison of just desiring to get revenge. That's what forgiveness is. It's a freeing experience. It brings freedom. Forgive as the Lord Jesus Christ has forgiven you. Let me tell you this. He will lead you into more freedom and fullness than you have ever known. Freedom can be yours today. All right, so bringing this message home. If forgiveness is releasing from your debt... Those who have offended you, right? If forgiveness is this non-optional extending of grace to those who have sinned against you, right? Regardless of apology or repentance. If that's what forgiveness is, then how do we do it? How how do we walk the the road of forgiveness? I, I want us to get really practical here for the last few minutes of this message. And as I do so, I'll ask the worship team to come on up. How do we begin walking this path of forgiveness? First, it's important to remember God's grace to you. I've already asked it this morning, but I want to ask it again. Do you realize the grace that has been given to you in Christ Jesus? Do you realize the forgiveness that you've already received from the Father? Do you realize the insurmountable debt that that's been wiped clean from your record, never to be applied to you ever again? You've been given so much more grace than you or I will ever know. So how do we walk this path of forgiveness? Remember God's grace to you. How do we do that? What's the tangible way of doing that? Well, I think we could engage in a mental exercise. Maybe you need to get out a piece of paper and a pen, but I encourage you, start, start remembering God's grace to you by writing down every sin that you've committed that he has already forgiven. Now, this isn't to kind of beat ourselves up. No, no, friends. This isn't for a a condemnation exercise, right? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But this is an exercise to remind us uh, of just the relentless, amazing grace of the Father. And I encourage you, if you do this, if you start writing down the grievances that you've committed toward God and others, the, the, the grievance of your offender starts to look pretty minimal. Remember God's grace to you and realize what a completely forgiving God he is. And then ask for his help. Ask for his help. God, God, you've extended grace to me. Help me do the same to others. Second, 
How do we begin walking this path of forgiveness? See yourself like your offender. In Ecclesiastes 7, verses 21 and 22, we read these words, Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you, for you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. In other words, what the author is saying is, stop taking yourself so seriously. Stop getting so easily upset and worked up about what others say or do against you. Instead, man, see yourself like your offender. Realize that there are sinful things that you yourself have done to God and to others. No one is perfect. None of us in this room is perfect. We've all been on the offending end of the argument, and it's only when we see ourselves rightly, right when we, when we operate in this thing called humility, it's only then that God starts to work in us and our, our hard hearts begin to soften and move from harboring bitterness to, 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 to fostering a forgiving spirit. Third, how can we begin walking the path of forgiveness? Let me say this, pray blessing over your offender. In Luke's gospel, chapter 6, we read these words, these challenging, haunting words of Jesus. He says this, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. You see, by praying blessing, you are physically declaring and reminding yourself that you've released that person from your debt. This is something that, again, my wife and I have chosen to do to those who have offended us in our past. Maybe it's a parent or a friend or an ex. We have vowed to pray blessing over that person. And, and, and as much and as often as needed. So what does this tangibly look like? Well, as Rob Bremer says in Soul Care, says praying blessing over someone is as simple as praying for them all the, the good things that you desire for yourself. So let me ask this, do you, do you long to grow closer to your spouse, to your kids, to Jesus? Then pray that over that person. Or, or do you long for job security for you and your loved ones? Do you, do you long for an increase of finances? Man, pray that over them. Do you, do you long to know more of the peace and joy and favor of God? And pray that over those who have cursed you. How do you walk this path of forgiveness? Man, you pray blessing over those who've hurt you. And you don't stop. No, continue praying for that person until you feel they are completely released from your debt and you've forgiven them once and for all. Last year, a close friend from childhood told me that his, uh, his mother had had an affair. And when this came to light, when the, his dad had found out, the man who had actually been in the affair with his mom came and he, he repented, he apologized for what he had done. And I was shocked because I was for sure thinking, man, this guy's going to get a black eye or worse, right? But that's not what happened at all, friends. No, instead, my, my friend's dad, he took this, this offender by the shoulders and he looked him in the eyes and he said, I forgive you. And then he began to pray blessing over him. This is what real biblical forgiveness could look like. This is what real biblical forgiveness should look like, friends. It's praying blessing over those who've cursed us. Finally, how can you practice this pathway of forgiveness? Forgive and keep forgiving. Well, most of us would like to be able to forgive our offenders once and then just move on 
right? Never to remember that again, never to be bothered by that again. The truth is that that seldom happens. You see, forgiveness isn't just a one-time deal, it's a process. So every time those offenses come to mind, every time you remember the words spoken over you, every time you find yourself remembering that thing that occurred against you, because now's your opportunity to release them again from your death pray blessing over them and to forgive them until they're completely released. Forgiveness takes work. And this is why we need to be vigilant to forgive as much and as often as needed. So do you want to walk the road of forgiveness today? Let me say this. Do you want to be free today? If you do, freedom is yours in Christ. On the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus, when he had given thanks, took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. You see, he wanted us to remember, friends. He wants us to, to, to remember what he did for us, what he was going to do for us that day at Calvary. How through his, his death, through his shed blood, how he won forgiveness and freedom for each and every one of us. So today we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper together. It's a little different this week. There's four tables. There's two at the front. There's two at the back. And what we're going to do is the band's going to play just kind of like this, reflectively. And I want to encourage you that if there is some business in your heart that you need to do with the Father today, to do that before you come up. Don't just kind of robotically come onto the front and, and take the bread and the cup and go back to your seat. No, no, no. Take some time. Just soak, reflect, meditate. Ask, ask the Lord, God, is there anyone I need to forgive? Uh, maybe he'll bring a name to mind. And when that happens, release them from your debt. Remember God's grace to you. See yourself a little more like them than you did before. Pray blessing over them. Forgive them from your heart. So we're going to take communion. We're going to tables in the back, tables in the front. I don't know what's in your heart, but you do. The Holy Spirit does. He's going to show you. He's good like that. He knows things we don't. So I encourage you to ask him. Lord, see if there's any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way, the, the way of everlasting. So maybe you need to forgive a spouse today. Maybe you need to forgive a parent or a, a friend. Maybe you need to forgive God. Maybe you need to forgive yourself. Let's spend some time reflecting. And then when you're ready, come to the front. We'll partake together.